Welcome to the Men's Divorce Podcast, presented by the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell, a partner men can count on. Now, here's your host, managing partner and CEO of Cordell & Cordell, Scott Trout. Welcome, this is Scott Trout. I'm the CEO and managing partner of Cordell & Cordell, and welcome to part three of our ongoing series, Surrounding Divorce and all aspects of it. In this part three, uh, we're going to talk gently and more specifically about filing and what happens. So my wife has filed. Uh, what do I do now? Those types of things, because that's always the, the pressing question as to what guys should do, because there are a lot of things that need to happen. And specifically, we'll talk about action items. So when you've been served, you're on the clock. So we want to talk a little bit about that. And I am joined today by Will House from the St. Louis, Missouri office, who is a litigation attorney with Cordell and Cordell. So welcome, Will. Thank you, Scott. So Will's got a, a plethora of litigation experience and is licensed in Missouri only. So uh, always, as I talk about in these uh, podcasts, is to use caution with how we discuss things. Do not take this as legal advice. It is not intended to be such, and uh, we don't want it to be because there are so many intricacies in family law that we really require you to go see your attorney. Uh, but we really want to put these issues out there to spur a conversation. So when you're listening out there, take some notes and then go call your lawyer. Or if you don't have one, you certainly can you know, get a hold of a lawyer. Uh, or at Cordell & Cordell, we have offices around the country. But we want this to be uh, a conversation. And especially now when we're going to talk about she's filed, what do I do? Which presumes that you didn't want it or you didn't see it. Uh, or you did want it, but you just didn't file first, which I've talked about in my previous part two or part one segments about filing first. So... We'll just dive right into it. Um, well, uh, she's filed. And uh, can you just give us a – now, you know, keeping in mind that we have guys out there listening across the country. Um, and so the timelines differ. But, you know, you can use Missouri as a good baseline because uh, obviously they're just action items. So give us a general timeline. What happens once someone files, once the wife files? Sure. So uh, first thing that you're going to want to do is go to talk to an attorney. Um, because there are, like you said, the clock does start and there are very specific timelines that you need to hit. And while there may be some, some wiggle room there, some motions you can file to get extra time, you, you don't really want to do that because you are, you're starting off with a bad impression with the court that you're not able to keep deadlines. So you get served and at least here in Missouri, and I believe most other states around the country, you have 30 days to file your answer mm-hmm. and a counter petition. So that's just your response, your initial response to what she's alleging. And then if you want to make any allegations of your own, you put those in the counter petition. So within that first 30 days, there's a lot of work that can be done and in a lot of cases needs to be done. Uh, Depending on your location, uh, even your location within Missouri, there are deadlines for filing financials, uh, statement of income and expense, statement of property, proposed parenting plan. In a lot of locations I've noticed recently, they've started doing mandatory document exchanges uh, within the first 60 days of the case. So those sorts of things, um, there's a lot of documentation that needs to be gathered, uh, a lot of conversations with your attorney to start strategizing because 
there's just a lot of things, and we can unpack a lot of this throughout this podcast, but there's a lot of things that if you want to pursue it, you need mm-hmm. to start from the beginning. Because if you bring it in halfway, it looks reactionary. It looks like you're trying to get back at the other side, maybe for something that they did or, or somehow you thought they got the upper hand, so you needed to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's guys out there, and I can tell you, you know, you probably heard it where guys say, look, you know, I don't want this divorce. She can have it. I'm just not going to file an answer. Is that a good idea? That is a terrible idea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what we use the word default. Right. So tell me and tell guys out there, one, why they shouldn't just ignore it and go into default. Okay. So a couple of things. Um, one, if you go into default, you're basically saying, I agree with everything that's in the petition and she can have whatever she's wa- she wants. Now, in theory, uh, the judge is, is supposed to be bound by what's in the petition. Um, I can tell you from my own experience that I've had times where that has happened and mm-hmm. other times where the judge just kind of lets the person ask for whatever they want. So even right. if in that initial pleading, it didn't say, I want sole legal custody, I want sole physical custody, I want maintenance, alimony, you know, all of the different things, then sometimes judges will still let them have those things or ask for those things. So you may be caught by surprise, even if you don't think she's going to go for something or that she's pursuing something. By not showing up, you're, you're basically just saying she can have whatever she wants. And uh, long term, that can put you at a severe disadvantage if you ever do decide, oh, wait, I want to change that. Yeah. You know, there's guys out there right now, they have no kids, short term marriage, maybe it's long term. Uh, they didn't acquire a lot of assets and they're like, why do I pay a lawyer? I, I mean, Will, this sounds like a great idea. I can save all the fees and just go into default and she can have whatever, you know, I don't care. Right. If you if you really truly don't care, <laughs> right. uh, <laughs> I'd be surprised. Yeah. First of all, um, but secondly, I've had people come in where uh, even in a case where it w- there was no children, there it was property mm-hmm. and uh, maintenance, and the guy made significantly more. He knew he was going to be paying maintenance. She put a specific number mm-hmm. in the petition. He was like, "Yeah, I'm comfortable with that. That's fine." What he didn't realize was that. By giving away the house, which was another thing that he did, he thought he had bought himself out of future maintenance, mm-hmm. and that's just not the case. Right. And a lot of times, um, maybe even the other side has an attorney, and they bring you some documents, and they say, oh, you just sign off on this, and, and we'll be good. So we're moving a little bit away from default, but they say, just sign off on this, and if you agree to it, great. And you read through it, and you sign off on it. But there's a lot of words that we use that mean something different than when the general public sees those. And so that can create some issues for you as well. And it's very similar, you know, when guys talk about, oh, she can have the house, I can't, I don't want to pay for it. What they don't think about is when the court orders or gives her the house and that guy's name still on the mortgage, right. still on the mortgage, right? Exactly. And so the bank doesn't care who owns it. All they care about is who's on the note. And when she goes into default, who are they going to look to? They're looking to look at the person on the mortgage. Yeah, right. So, I mean, that's, I think, one of the big misconceptions uh, or misunderstandings is that when a court orders the transfer of title, uh, it does not uh, alter the banknote unless they refinance. Right. And the court can't order them to do that. No, they can They can tell them they need to get the other party's name off the loan, mm-hmm. but they can't force the creditor right. to accept that. Right. And you're talking about getting a lawyer, and I know we addressed this probably in part one, but it's always good to talk again about it. And what should they look for when, okay, she's filed, 
Will, you convince me I need to go at least talk to someone. Who do I look for? What, you know, what do you recommend, you know, when they're trying to Google search for an attorney in their area, uh, what should they look for? So I always recommend, and I'll, you know, I even tell this to people who come in and talk to me. I say, you know, talk to other attorneys. You want to be comfortable with your attorney. But my recommendation is focus on attorneys who practice exclusively family law. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not to say that there aren't good attorneys out there who do other areas of the law, but there are so many detailed issues that can come up in a case. And if if you, it's like having a little bit of knowledge about everything mm-hmm. or a lot of knowledge about one thing. Right. And so that's where I think it behooves the client to have an attorney who only does family law because they're in front of the same judges all the time. They know the ins and outs of the law. They know the details of how child support is calculated and what is income and what isn't income and, you know, uh, what factors the judge is looking at when they're trying to determine custody. Mm-hmm. So all those little things, having somebody who does exclusively family law, I think is really important. Yeah, I agree. It's like anything. I always liken it to medicine and, and a great example over the weekend. Um, I had this, my eye started to swell. So I, you know, of course it's getting worse. I go to urgent care and they do a great job. They took care of me. They generally know how to treat eye conditions and at the end, you know, here's some medicine. You should be good to go. But she goes, I'd recommend going to someone who just deals with eyes, right? And it's the very same thing in families. That look, general practitioners out there, they dabble. They're really skilled. It's not, as Will said, it's not a lack of skill. But there are certain intricacies or experience. Why, for example, us at Cordell and Cordell, you know, this is what we've done and all we've done for so long, and you get just a little bit different of experience and, and really the, the power of 300 lawyers with, you know, seeing different uh, strategies. And so I think that's, you know, this weekend I was thinking of that and uh, taking the advice. You know, I could just stick with a general practitioner and go, oh, it'll take care of itself. But, you know, like vision is important. And so I, I took it for what it was that just like divorce, you know, your property, your kids, everything you've worked hard for is extremely important. So make the best decision. And I always say, Choosing a lawyer is like choosing a doctor, and you want them to heal you, so treat the uh, the attorney in the same manner, and, and that's always good. So there are guys that always hear their friends, well, you know, I represented myself pro se, they call it in Missouri. Can't I do that too? You can. Um, again, uh, just kind of going back to what I was saying before, there's going to be a lot of terms that we use uh, as attorneys um, that are going to mean something different than what you generally uh, know that to mean. Additionally, I as an attorney, when I see somebody that's pro se on the other side, um, I tend to see that as an advantage for me mm-hmm. um, just because I do know those intricacies. And so there may be little areas where I can sort of take advantage of that, or at least I don't have to explain to that pro se individual, well, here's what the law actually says. Mm-hmm. Or I can explain that here is what the law actually says when it benefits my client. Right. So it's just sort of, um, you know, it, <laughs> to use your medical analogy, like you wouldn't perform surgery on yourself. Right. I mean, unless you're, you have no other option. Yeah. And maybe that's your case. But you want somebody who knows what they're doing, does this all the time. I would be the first person to tell you that I'm not going to do work on my car. Yeah. I, I could probably do it. I could Google a YouTube video and figure it out, mm-hmm. but I'd rather bring it to the shop and let the guy who knows what totally. he's doing take yep. care of it. Agreed. 
So, all right, we've uh, gotten past. Now we've convinced every guy out there to hire a lawyer, so, which is the perfect thing because we'll protect them. And so the first 90 days, I, when I meet with guys, I talk to them about avoiding looking at divorce in a panoramic window because it becomes overwhelming. You know, in, in Missouri, it could be 365 days long. Uh, could be. Uh, so the point is, is to take them in snapshots and you can attack it. So that's why let's just talk about 90 days. It's a good time frame because uh, a little bit busy in the beginning. So just generally tell guys what happens in the first 90 days. What can they expect? You know, will they've retained you? What happens now? All right. So as I said at the beginning, there's a lot of deadlines that come up and most of them are within those first 90 days. Uh, the answer in the counter petition. So that's, that's required so you don't go into default. And you, you absolutely want to avoid that. Then you've got your financials. Now, you want to fill out your financials accurately because they're, that's sort of the court's window into your life. Uh, it's the first documented window, at least in St. Louis County, where I practice a lot, uh, into your life. They'll see that. And so you want to fill those out accurately. One, because, like I said, it's your first impression with the court, but it's also your first impression from a, an honesty standpoint. You don't want to overvalue things, but you also don't want to undervalue them because the court's going to look at the rest of your uh, testimony suspiciously if, if you're not being accurate. Uh, you also want to be accurate because when you're looking at things like maintenance, child support, you want the court to know what the actual picture is. So, mm -hmm. so if you're not going to be able to pay that maintenance or you can only do X amount, then that's something that you've put out from the very beginning. Um, the mandatory document exchange, like I said, I've seen a lot of uh, localities here in Missouri start to do mandatory discovery within the first 90 days. Um, a lot of times we'll also send out our own discovery, which is not mandatory, but um, very helpful in moving the process along mm -hmm. at the very beginning of the case. Because the more information we have, the earlier we have that information, the quicker we can make the case go. Um, and I say make the case go. We, of course, can't really control anything. There's two parties to the case, so mm -hmm. we can't say this is going to make your case resolve faster. But the sooner that we have a picture of everything and a clear picture of everything, the sooner that we can start to put together settlement proposals, start talking to the judge, set a settlement conference date mm -hmm. so that we can get in and, and talk to the judge about what the issues are, how the judge views those issues, hear the other side's counter arguments. So getting all that documentation together, um, it is a lot of work in that mm -hmm. first 90 days, uh, a lot of legwork, and a lot of it is going to be on the client's part yeah. um, to get us that information. And then it's up to us to digest that information and put it into a form where the court's going to look at it and say, oh, I see. Right. So in those 90 days, let's kind of transition where you want the client to prepare a good set of goals that revolve around property, money, uh, and custody. And so there's a lot of considerations that guys should, you know, take into, you know, thought. Um, let's talk about uh, job schedule. You know, uh, is that a conversation you've had with guys relating to custody? Definitely, um, especially with relation to custody. Um, with job schedules, there's really two issues uh, that, that tend to come up. The first and the most important is custody. And then second is uh, income or discretionary income, you know, overtime, bonuses, things like that. Mm -hmm. So with regard to custody, what I've had judges tell me before is, you know, I'll make the argument, well, judge, my client can change his schedule. 
And they say, well, if he can, why hasn't he? Mm-hmm. And so at that point, you know, that that's the light bulb where you say, okay, we need to take care of this early on. We need to address this early on. So we were talking about the first 90 days and I sort of glossed over this. I guess I just kind of take it for granted that we have our, our five-day follow-up that we always meet with our clients within five days of them retaining. Mm-hmm. And so we use that opportunity to discuss the issues that are going to come up, the goals for the client, and what things might be roadblocks to those goals. Mm-hmm. So, for example, with a custody schedule and a work schedule, and when those don't mesh, um, you know, doctors who have, you know, long hours, 12-hour shifts, um, third shift workers, um, over-the-road truck drivers, mm-hmm. that's where we're talking about, okay, is this going to be something that you can change? And if you can, how quickly can you change it? Yeah. Um, because the judge is going to want to see that you've already made that transition. Maybe mm-hmm. you had a different arrangement before because you were married and that worked out while you were married, but now you're getting divorced. Right. And so those changes should take effect as quickly as possible. It's always like firefighters. Oh, yeah. Those are always the ones that are difficult police. Firefighters, although, you know, historically when I've represented them, you know, they don't get their schedule, you know, shortly before and it's good for a month and it's often difficult. But those are some of the more critical things, as you suggest, at the five-day meeting at Cordell & Cordell is, hey, let's – what are your goals? And then we write the goals, meaning that does it work with the schedule in which you have or can you make some changes? So, I mean, these are the takeaways for guys out there is, one, as you can see, it's all about conversations with your attorney – strategizing, making plans, making changes, putting something new into effect, that always kind of aligns you uh, to be in the best position possible to achieve your goal. So you mentioned overtime and bonus. Um, Some of the things that guys overlook, and there are a lot of states that don't have this uh, as a right, an absolute right, but uh, I always want to mention change of judge. Talk to me a little bit about what guys should think about and should they overlook, are they going to anger someone? Are they going to anger the judge by exercising the right? What it is first, what does a change of judge mean and when they really should consider it? Sure. So uh, in the state of Missouri, at least, uh, everybody gets a free change of judge, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak. So within the first, I think it's 60 days or 90 days, I'd have to double check the rule. Um, but within that first time period, uh, each side has the opportunity to take a change, and you can do that for no reason whatsoever. Now, a judge may need to recuse themselves if they were previously the attorney for the other side, um, but those are that's a decision that needs to be made pretty early on. When to make that decision, and this kind of goes back to having somebody who practices exclusively family law, you're going to have familiarity with judges and how they view certain areas of the law because mm-hmm. family law is not a black and white area of law, especially when it comes to custody. It's not that any judge is necessarily wrong mm-hmm. about the way that they view it, but it is how does that judge's view of the law reflect on your circumstances right. and what your goals are? I call it judge-to-judge variability. You right. know? And it could be emotionally driven by whether they like the client. True. I mean, they're just, okay, go take me up on appeal. But historically, you know, I would presume if you're familiar and this is what you do, you tend to know a pattern of what judges are going to do you know, in some regards, right? Right. I mean, there's, you know, we don't have a crystal ball. We can't say exactly Mm -hmm. what a judge is going to do. But when you have similar circumstances pop up over Mm -hmm. and over and judges tend to try to remain consistent because that's the whole point of the law to know, you know, what an outcome is going to be for any given set of facts. um, At that point, then you'll have a good idea. 
is this judge going to be open to the arguments that I'm making? And if not, what is the risk factor for me taking that change? Are the other judges that I could possibly be assigned to going to look more or less favorably on the case? Also, guys here often a guardian ad litem or an advocate for the child, um, someone who represents the child. So one, we don't want to assume the guys out there know what that is, but if they've heard about it, first, if you can just tell them what it is and do they want one? Okay. So a guardian ad litem is an attorney. Uh, in Missouri, at least, they are required to be an attorney. And they are sort of an extension of the court. A lot of people say that they're the children's attorney. That's not technically mm-hmm. accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, your attorney is to advocate uh, for what your goals are, what your desires are. Um, that is not necessarily a guardian ad litem's position. Their position is to advocate what's in the best interest of the child. Mm-hmm. And so that may or may not be what the child wants, or at least what the child has stated that mm-hmm. they want. But that is their role within the court is to to be sort of an extension of the judge, to investigate. Uh, They have all of the abilities of any other attorney, send out subpoenas, interview witnesses, call witnesses, cross-examine at trial, all those sort of things. In certain cases, they are required in Missouri to be appointed. If there are allegations of abuse or neglect in Missouri, they are required to be appointed. There is some debate uh, about whether they are required to be appointed in every paternity case. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in all likelihood, in most paternity cases, a guardian litem does get appointed uh, unless it's non-contested or, or amicable. They're also allowed to be appointed in any contested custody case. So anytime the custody is at issue, mm-hmm. they can be appointed. Regardless of any allegations of abuse or neglect. Right. Okay. That, and at that point, that's up to the judge. If the judge feels like it's going to be helpful mm-hmm. to make that determination, then they can appoint one. Now, going back to the change of judge, um, two things. With a guardian, you do also have the opportunity to take a change from the guardian. Mm-hmm. Um, if they are appointed by the court, if they're entered into by consent, then you cannot take a change. Also on modifications, because we do deal with custody, obviously, um, with a motion to modify, at least in Missouri, if you have a judge that you were previously assigned to, Mm -hmm. your modification case is not a new case Mm -hmm. where you get to then take a change of judge. So you're sort of, quote unquote, stuck with that judge. With the guardian, though, even on a modification, you can take a change of guardian. So let's say you had a guardian in your initial divorce. They, for whatever reason, didn't like you, thought you were, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Then, yes, you can and probably should take a change from that guardian. Not anything against that individual. They just don't see your case the way that you see your case mm-hmm. and that we want the judge to see your case. So we would need to take a change in that circumstance. You had early on mentioned gathering documents, so quickly, what, you know, lawyers use this word discovery. I mean, I guess if you think about what it means, it is, you know, to find things, to gather, to get more information. Walk guys through just generally high level what that means and what's available to them and what you think they should take advantage of. So there's all sorts of discovery mechanisms. Um, One that you'll hear a lot about are subpoenas. Mm -hmm. So subpoenas are basically orders to third parties to produce certain documents. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times we'll send subpoenas for work records, uh, employment information, uh, bank records, credit card statements, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
those we send out to third parties because they're the ones who have the original documents. Uh, for custody cases, school records, mm-hmm. maybe police reports, depending on what allegations are in the case, uh, counseling reports. So uh, there's a lot that can be obtained through subpoenas. Well, you know, the client's going to come up to you. Well, well, can't I just go get those and hand them to you? Well, I mean, that, I mean, it sounds like a common sense thing, right? Sure. I, hey, I'll save the money. I'll run down there. I'll get a copy. This is good enough. Right. First of all, you may not be able to get a copy, but let's say you can get a copy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are, at least in Missouri, there is a, a rule that allows us to get certain documents into evidence without uh, having to have the custodian of records, that's the person who keeps those records in the normal course of their business, without having them come to court and testify to the uh, veracity of those records. So if you just go and get those records, bring them to me, that's great for my information, but if I need to use them at court, I'm kind of stuck because mm-hmm. I can't, you know, you, chain of custody isn't really the right word, right. but I can't give that to the court and say, oh, judge, I can guarantee the accuracy of yeah, these. Yeah, and authenticate that they're actually exactly what they portray they're, that they're saying that they are. Right. Right. And that kind of dovetails into like a pro se, where remember we talked a little bit ago about can I represent myself? I mean, here's a, a good example of someone you probably have no idea how to authenticate and to get that testimony in to make sure that they meet the records or that, you know, you can assure that they are authenticated documents, right? Right. And as a pro se individual, you're held to the same standard mm-hmm. as any attorney that's in the courtroom. So objections, yeah. getting evidence, uh, getting documents into evidence, all of that, you're held to that same standard. So if you don't know the the process to get there, it's going to be incredibly and, difficult. And there are lawyers who struggle <laughs> <laughs> to get that process in. And yes. sometimes it's not easy, right? You got to hit all the uh, the elements. So, all right, um, depositions. Does a guy need it? If you're going to trial, mm-hmm. you, I think you absolutely should have a deposition. Uh, if you if you really just can't afford it, and that's a strategy decision for you, I, you know, I, again, this is a strategy mm-hmm. decision for right. you and your attorney. But I think depositions are great because for me as an attorney, it gives me an opportunity to look across the table, see how the other person reacts when I ask them a question, um, get a lot of information, both verbal and nonverbal. Um, I want to know what kind of witness is this person going to be? Mm-hmm. Are they going to be up on the stand and the judge is going to feel sympathy for them? Yeah. Or are they going to argue with me the whole time and that's going to look poorly for them? Same thing for my client. I want to prepare them for the deposition so that they you know, aren't reacting the way that maybe opposing counsel is going to try to get them mm-hmm. to react. And try to make sure that what you hear in trial isn't the first time you've heard it. Right. Right. You want to lock in testimony. That's the other big benefit of a deposition so that before you go to trial, you know what the other side is going to say. And if they Mm -hmm. change their story, then you can impeach them. And that's, I know that word probably means a lot right now to a lot of people, but uh, within the legal context, you can show the judge that either they were lying then or they're lying now. Right. So, you know, in, in this world of divorce, and and obviously these terms are not uh, universal when it comes to custody, but many guys don't understand the importance or difference between physical and legal. You know, you may have uh, states, and I know of, that use the term residential in in exchange for physical, or they just, uh, some have used primary, which they're getting away from, or eliminating. Just at a high level again, I know it's Missouri, but explain to guys what, what physical and legal custody really, really is. 
physical custody is your actual physical schedule. Um, for both physical and legal custody in Missouri, we have joint and we have sole. Mm-hmm. So physical custody, joint physical custody means that you both have significant amount of time. It doesn't necessarily mean equal time. It could mm-hmm. be something as much as uh, once a week and every other weekend could be considered joint physical custody. Even every other weekend I've seen called joint physical custody. With sole physical custody, the biggest difference is that the court is automatically going to use the parent who has sole physical custody, the court's going to use their address for mailing and educational purposes. In joint physical custody, the court has to list out who they're going to use. And just as an aside, it doesn't really give either side any more mm-hmm. power to, ha- right. to have that residential status, is what you'll hear a lot. Um, it's just where the child is going to school from, which is important in, in many cases, but that it doesn't give either parent more power. Right. Now, with legal custody, that's where it's really, really important. Um, with legal custody, if you have joint legal custody, that means the two of you have to make decisions together. You have to discuss uh, what what you're going to do on behalf of your child and then make that decision jointly. If you can't agree, most of the time, the court is going to say that the status quo remains. So, mm-hmm. for example, if you want to change doctors or you want to change daycares, any, anything that uh, requires a parent's signature is how I often mm-hmm. explain it, mm-hmm. um, you guys have to agree on that. With sole legal custody, technically you're supposed to still discuss those decisions. It doesn't always happen. Yep. But the person with sole legal custody gets to make that final decision if the parties can't agree. So that's where it's really important to have uh, joint legal custody and make sure that you are part of that decision-making process. So guys often say, uh, you know, know, my wife told me, hey, um, let's save some money. You can use, we can just use one lawyer. Use mine. He's great. He knows it all. And, and he, he said he can, he can walk us through getting this resolved. Is that a wise idea? If your wife already has an attorney, that attorney cannot help you in any way. Uh, it is unethical. Even if she says he can. Even if she says he Because she can. will. She'll say it. No. That, <laughs> no. It would be unethical for any attorney to represent both sides in any litigation, mm-hmm. much less uh, an emotional area like family litigation. If your spouse, soon to be ex-spouse, comes to you and says, let's just use one attorney, maybe you'll have one attorney drafted up, but mm-hmm. you should have your own attorney look over it and make sure that you understand that what's in there is what you actually agreed to. If you want to talk about mediation, you can have an attorney who is a mediator mm-hmm. uh, be involved, but that creates some more issues. Right. So let's jump then, uh, we'll get to mediation because I think that's always something uh, guys want to know more about because um, there are opportunities there. Um, what happens behind closed doors? You know, these guy, guys often go to court in something that's called a settlement conference, a status conference, um, you know, a case management conference. It depends on what they're called around the country. But when you walk in court and your lawyer saying, hey, it's just for us to go tell the judge what's going on, what happens behind closed doors? Because that's often what occurs is the client sits in the courtroom, the attorneys go behind the bench or behind the door, this magical door, and it shuts and you have no idea. I mean, oftentimes I think, gosh, if I were the client, I'd be like, what is going on back there? I wish I knew what they were saying. So what happens back there? Right. So in a settlement conference, status conference, depending where you're at, Um, that's a time for the attorneys 
to make arguments to the judge. Uh, I had a judge actually state it very clearly uh, the other week. Everything I've heard up until this point has been argument, not evidence, Mm -hmm. because they don't receive evidence. Evidence is only put forth at trial. So when we're back there, we're making arguments. We're letting the judge know what our position is, what facts we anticipate that we'll be able to present at trial, Mm -hmm. and what sort of outcome we're looking for. And the other side is going to do the exact same thing. Is it kind of like a, a preview to a movie? You're trying to get a, I mean, from, you know, whatever yeah. the judge says. Like, you get to watch a preview of these blockbuster movies and it's, you know, oh, yeah, I kind of, I get it now. I know what the plot is. So kind of what the judge, when you make argument, the judge may or may not give you, um, hey, if this were the evidence, this is maybe the direction I'd go. Right. You uh, Judges will sometimes do that mm-hmm. and give you kind of a, an idea of where you're headed. Sometimes they'll let you know. If you want to make that argument, I'm going to need to see X, Y, or Z. And that can help you tailor your discovery mm-hmm. going forward. So it's sort of circular. Discovery, you know, kind of working back to discovery, discovery doesn't just stop with the first set that you send out or the first uh, set of, you know, interrogatories, is written questions that you have to answer under oath. Um, that doesn't stop just at the beginning because as you go on, you find out more information, mm-hmm. you provide that to the judge in these status or settlement conferences, and then the judge sometimes, oftentimes, we'll say, okay, well, I see where you're headed. If you're going to go down that route, I'm going to need to see this. Right. And then that helps us figure out what we need to find. So, they, they, you know, it, to me, when they call them status conferences or case management, that sounds, you know, appropriate. But, you know, clients say, well, this is a settlement conference. Why didn't I settle? Yeah. Why am I keeping going? I don't want to settle. I don't need to go to these. Yeah. Settlement conference, I, I think it's the idea... I guess, behind it is to encourage you to settle. Mm -hmm. It gives you uh, a preview of where the judge is headed. And so in most cases, once we have a good idea of where the judge is headed, then that can help us inform you, the client, hey, here's where the judge is headed. Everything becomes a cost-benefit analysis. Mm -hmm. How much do I want to spend to try and get past where the judge is right now? What's the likelihood of me getting past where the judge is right now? And so you can then decide what's the best way for you to spend your money going forward, spend your time, spend the the anxiety of going through a trial Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or say, you know what? Okay, I know where this is headed. These are the things I want to focus on. These are the things that I'm willing to let go. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, last topic on after she's filed for divorce and you alluded to it, mediation. You know, it's a hot topic out there. Uh, do I, you know, what do you tell guys? Do they go spend the money, hire a mediator? What happens and, and what does it mean? And then, you know, at Cordell and Cordell, I always, and, and Will and I talked about this uh, offline here, and that is informal mediation. And maybe you can touch a few of those things. Mediation is where a third party, they don't necessarily have to be an attorney, but oftentimes they are, is going to uh, play a neutral role. And you and your soon-to-be ex-spouse are, will go in, explain your side of the case to the mediator and the mediator sort of acts like an informal judge. And they will let you know, depending on the mediator, everybody's got their own different style, but they will let you know, you know, here are some things about your case that I agree with. Here are some things that I disagree with. Mm -hmm. And they'll help you try and resolve some of the conflicts that you have, uh, maybe try and meet in the middle somewhere or maybe on a value for the house or, you know, you want seven out of 14 overnights and she only wants you to have three out of 14. So 
can everybody agree that we'll do five out of 14 or six mm-hmm. out of 14? And maybe the answer is yes, and maybe the answer is no. With that sort of mediation, um, it it's very fact-dependent. It very mm-hmm. much depends on where you're at in your case, how far apart you are on certain things. If it's down to some minor disagreements, that type of mediation, I think, can be pretty helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can't represent you. No. And they can't give you advice. No. No, they're not supposed to. Um, right. I, I mean, you still need a lawyer to counsel you as to what the law is, what is maybe perhaps the best case and the worst case scenario based upon the facts, and what you should or shouldn't do. If right? you're going to go into mediation, you need mm-hmm. to be prepared mm-hmm. to go into mediation. And so, in, in the cases that I have where we do use a, a mediator, we will meet before mediation. We'll go over a list of all right. Here's what I absolutely have to have out of this. Mm-hmm. No compromise on this. Can't move. Right. Here's what I want. If push really comes to shove and she's giving me other things that I really want that she won't do before, then maybe I'll move on that. And then the I don't care about list where it's, if it's yes or no, yeah. Mm-hmm. But if we're fighting about it, I really don't care about it. It's something I can easily let go. That being said, I tend to shy away from those types of mediation situations. And, mm-hmm. and as you and I discussed, prefer the more informal mediation, uh, you know, what I call a four-way sit-down, mm-hmm. where the attorneys from both sides and the parties from both sides will come together, maybe at my office, maybe at, at the other attorney's office, and we'll see what we can hash out. Yep. Um, and, and those it, those work very well when you have two attorneys who know what they're doing mm-hmm. uh, on the case. Uh, sometimes they work out really well when the other side doesn't know what they're doing. Right. But um, no, it, it, those are ones where... If you have somebody on the other side who is willing to tell their client, look, this is a reasonable position, this is an unreasonable position, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, then that can be a, a very successful yeah. form of mediation. And it, it's worth, I think, I, I tell clients right away, whether he's filed or she's filed, it's worth a shot at informal. Uh, and just to see, uh, one, it's also perhaps a free look into what their case is be, or what they want, their strategy. Uh, and then you really know, and, but at least you've given it a shot. It's probably a good investment of whatever time and money. Yeah, yeah and you can figure out how far apart you are. Yeah. yeah, it can last seven minutes. It can last seven hours. It just depends on how far apart the parties are. Right. All right. Well, good stuff. I appreciate it. And uh, I know guys out there got a lot out of it. I know in the last forty minutes, it's a lot of information. But uh, to get more information, uh, go to our websites. We have multiple websites: Cordell and Cordell dot com dadsdivorce.com or mensdivorce.com. Or you can uh, call us if you want to uh, set up an appointment at 866-DADS-LAW, 866-DADS-LAW. So again, I hope you got a lot of uh, good, useful information that you could use uh, with your attorney. Uh, If not, if you don't have one, find one. If not, we can certainly help you. Well, again, thank you for joining us on part three of our series on divorce. And you can join us next time uh, when we uh, close out this series on part four, which really deals with settlement or trial and uh, the nuts and bolts therein. So until next time, I'm Scott Trout, CEO of Cordell & Cordell. Thank you for listening to the Men's Divorce Podcast presented by Cordell & Cordell. To schedule your appointment with a Cordell & Cordell attorney, please visit CordellCordell.com or call us at 1-866-DADS-LAW. Also make sure to visit our partner websites, mensdivorce.com and dadsdivorce.com and download our free Men's Divorce Source app available on the App Store for the latest divorce news and resources. 
Cordell & Cordell, a partner men can count on.